Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> Again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And you probably saw the clip this week, John, of Chef David Chang becoming the first million-dollar winner on Celebrity Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, with him using his phone-a-friend on the final question to get help from sports journalist Mina Kimes, then declaring that because he's a gambler, He's going to risk dropping from $500,000 for his charity to just $32,000 in order to take a shot at winning the million. And he did indeed win. The gamble paid off. Uh, let me put you, John, a person who definitely does not describe himself as a gambler, in Chang's seat. Chang seemed about 50% confident in the answer. What percent confident would John Brennan have to be to risk losing $468,000 in pursuit of an extra half million? Yeah, I must say I had to look this up because I had not heard about it. But um, uh, first off, Kimes is too young and I'm too old to be an ideal phone-a-friend. You know, some <laughs> questions will favor one age group over the other. Now, this one didn't qualify really since it was about 19th century presidents. But right. um, so I don't I don't think that was a good strategy right there. Uh, it reminds me of interviewing a couple of the new owners of the New Jersey Nets late 1998 when they bought the franchise. Um, they were determined to move the team from the Meadowlands to Newark and – as part of their philanthropy, they would donate a portion of the team's annual profits to youth organizations in Newark. That sounds good. Uh, I know it's well intended, but I realized right away. Uh, are you telling me that if you're, say, you know, a community organizer hoping for a local school's gym to be refurbished, you have to root like hell for some random Nets player who wouldn't even be around the next season to hit a key free throw late in the game that helps the Nets make the playoffs and you get your gym? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't get it. Uh, uh, by the way, the team's business model had always been try to break even on the regular season, then make maybe a million dollars a game for each playoff game. And remember, the Nets at that point had won only one NBA playoff series in their entire history. So um, that just didn't seem like it was going to work. Um, and it didn't, by the way. Uh, I would describe the whole theme there as unintentionally bizarre. The fate of people in desperate need is not something to be toyed with like chess pieces. Right. Uh, same thing here. Back to our topic. And as usual, this comes down to ego. You know, hey, David Chang, at the point where you can walk away with $500,000 toward the charity, which happens to be Southern Smoke, it's a nonprofit foundation that aids those in the food and beverage industry whose lives have been devastated by the 2020 pandemic, which is a lot of people. Yeah. It's not about you. Repeat, it's not about you. And you're going to risk $468,000 of that for what? I mean, you know, Chang, look, I looked it up. He attended Georgetown Prep in Washington, D.C., which is a college prep school where the annual tuition is now more than $50,000. I'm going to go out on a limb and wonder how much empathy he truly has for the workers he says he wants to help, given this grotesque Masters of the Universe play here. Uh, and him doubling down and winning doesn't erase this stain to me by any means. Uh, one of my favorite Albert Einstein quotes is, God does not play dice with the world, as he resisted the core premise of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Now, that error by Einstein belongs on another podcast, obviously. But the point here is people don't play dice with anyone in dire need. Uh, to your original question, once I have a half a million on my plate to both improve and even save many lives, I have to take it. 
I would owe those people a need that much, even if, gee, I, I don't make the headlines as the first celebrity millionaire winner. Uh, Eric, you know, I have a very long fuse, but this one uh, kind of lit. <laughs> well, so uh, there's not even like some upper 90s percentile that's good enough for you. It's it's 100 percent or, uh, or or you walk away with the 500,000, huh? I, I don't I don't think. Yeah, uh, I I I just I'm walking away. I'm just walking away. I wow, just, you I'm are like, you are very much not a gambler. Okay, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but you hit it. You hit on the key thing is that the you know the the calculation changes a lot when you're trying to win it for charity and not for yourself. Uh, now I did hear Chang uh, in an interview afterward make the case that part of his calculation was that it was worth it win or lose because going for the million gets his charity extra publicity and awareness. Um, but yeah, just from a monetary perspective, the percentage difference between 32,000 and 500,000 is significantly greater than the percentage difference between half a million and a million. There's uh, it's, you know, in terms of the practical value of, of the difference there going from a half million to a million, that's not much. So I'd say for me personally, I think uh, anything below about 90% confidence in the answer, I'm just holding on to my half million there. So I'm I'm a little lower than you uh, in terms of my threshold, but uh, quite a bit higher than, than David Chang. Um, but one note here, the key thing to discuss, really, David Chang didn't know whether Benjamin Harrison was even a president. Uh, I mean, look, history was my least favorite subject in school. Uh, I am by no means a student of history, unless you're talking about sports history or trivial pop culture history. But I know who was and wasn't a president of the United States. Uh, epic fail by all of David Chang's history teachers. Well, I just remembered William Henry Harrison. And so then when you said Benjamin Harrison, I'm like, wait, there were two Harrisons? And there were two Harrisons. But uh, at the moment you mentioned it, I was a little uh, shaken too. But by the way, I, I don't believe anybody knew this question and this answer for certain. I, I don't get it. This, right. That was not right. I just it seemed it seemed like Mina Kimes kind of knows her presidential history is is a smart person and reasoned roughly based on the time frame he was her best guess. But she was definitely not confident. She did throw a probably in there, and then uh, and then Chang went ahead and gambled. Well, she also admitted that she was cut off, and then uh, at, at the end of her answer, she continued and said. I think you're right, but it's possibly it might be Cleveland. Oh. Uh, it wasn't even one of the four choices, by oh. way, so that probably <laughs> wouldn't have hurt because he would have said, "Well, that's not on the list, so that's not right." Um, but uh, I think it underscores, you know, our further objection to this is it's not like, well, he knew that question. There's a my all-time favorite, almost favorite game show moment was a a guy who was going for the million, not a celebrity, of course, and uh, he he had a phone a friend left. And mm -hmm. so he phoned a friend. He phoned his, either his father or his mother, I forget which parent. And he said, by the way, I just wanted to call you up and let you know, I just want a million dollars. But I have to hang up so I can give the answer and get the million dollars. <laughs> and they hung up. That was great. That was awesome. <laughs> right. That's that's pretty good. That's that's that's, a... bad, that's so badass. Like, you got the answer. You're so excited. You just want to take the damn money. Like, no, 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 no. I'm going to linger a little bit. I want to phone a friend. Dad, right. mom, whatever. Yeah. There you go. I just won. And now let me hang up. <laughs> right. And I'll win. And All right. So, so that is that is a level of confidence where I'm sure you're OK with going for the million. Uh, yes. I do. <laughs> OK. All right. Uh, thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 120 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 119 episodes, you can find them all on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Please subscribe, rate, and review, and then use your phone a friend to tell someone else to subscribe, rate, and review. And coming up a little later in the show, we're going to be joined by Jamie Salzberg, the man behind the After Gambling blog and podcast. He's a former problem gambler who hasn't placed a bet in 10 years, and congratulations for that. Uh, we'll ask Jamie about the state of responsible gambling protocols, 
playing in a casino during the pandemic and, and Barstool Sports controversial social media posts mixing children and gambling. But first, it's been an important week in some respects in the world of gambling, so let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. Let's start the news segment by looking back on a crazy week in this COVID-impacted NFL season, which translated to a wild week of NFL betting. It started with the Steelers-Ravens Thanksgiving night game getting postponed due to a COVID outbreak among the Ravens. It got moved to Sunday, then Tuesday, and finally landed on Wednesday afternoon with Robert Griffin III starting at quarterback for Baltimore and the spread expanding from Pittsburgh minus four to Pittsburgh minus ten and a half. We saw an even bigger line movement in the Saints-Broncos games as every Denver quarterback on the roster was ruled out and the Saints went from a five and a half point road favorite to a 17 point favorite and still covered easily. Elsewhere around the league, the predominant betting themes were public sides getting crushed and backdoor bad beats swinging bankrolls. Depending on the sports books, somewhere around 80 to 90% of bets and handle were on the Seahawks, Giants, Raiders, and Cardinals, none of whom covered, making this a tremendous week for the books. Uh, the Eagles backdoor cover against the Seahawks, uh, at least in terms of the closing line of six and a half, was especially ridiculous, coming from a Hail Mary and then a two-point conversion. Uh, but the Giants also blew their cover on an unlikely backdoor by Brandon Allen and the Bengals. And then Tampa got a backdoor cover, or at least a backdoor push, with a late rally in defeat to the Chiefs. John, did any of these crazy swings help or hurt you personally? Uh, what are your thoughts on the way the NFL is dealing with the COVID problems? And do you believe there's money to be made fading the public, or is that a myth that just happened to deliver this past weekend? Uh, well, for reasons not interesting enough to for a tangent on this podcast, I didn't have much of a chance to get involved in some of these games. But for the Baltimore-Pittsburgh game uh, Wednesday night, I saw the 10.5 points with the Ravens, and I know that Steelers' offense is weak, so I saw a window there. And for sentimental reasons, I thought, RG3 at only 170 yards passing over under. Let's try the over. <laughs> Well, after the comical first quarter, I was ducking for cover, and while I rarely do this, I saw the cash-out option on both just as the Steelers went up 9-7 early in the second quarter, and I'm still technically ahead. Um, I got a 96% return on the Ravens pick and double-pounded the button immediately, uh, but there was no even token offer on RG3. They're taking that money, and they're going to keep it. And, uh, you know, I once got a five-cent cash-out on an out-of-contention golfer $2 bet, and they wouldn't even give me the nickel for RG3. That's brutal. Um, of course, cashing on the right, Ravens was the right play that lost. You know, say la vie. And more to come as we settle up on the bankroll later. Uh, as far as COVID, I think the NFL is gambling. Uh, likelihood of a severe outcome from a tested positive player is smaller than some critics are willing to admit. But it ain't zero. Mm-hmm. I, I want to think these close calls on games played, uh, it changes player and personnel behavior in the coming weeks. But... These are young alpha males, so I'm not that confident there. And finally, fading the public is interesting. Oh, now I just remembered that I tried Eagles on the money line to be a contrarian, and that never stood a real chance. So uh, <laughs> hogs get rich, pigs no, pigs get rich, hogs get slaughtered, I think. Yeah, I guess that was the hog. Um, better to ask a professional gambler about this, but I would speculate that getting a line that climbs from under to over three or seven points, the public goes all in. That might be slightly profitable in the long run, but 
yeah, I don't completely buy the, you know, fade the public. Right. You know, it's funny, when you were talking about your RG3 over on passing yards, I'm sitting there thinking, well, but didn't that play late at the late in the game with Hollywood Brown get you there? And then I remembered RG3 wasn't the quarterback yeah. on that one. So, yeah, yeah, that didn't help. I had the over on his rushing yards, which did get there. And I had sure. the over on half an interception, which got there nice and early. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, not to totally spoil our Fast Five results later, but I, I was a victim of the Giants blowing their cover, and we both took a push in that Chiefs-Bucks game. Uh, but in real life, I was on the correct side of that Eagles ridiculousness, sort of. Uh, in in one parlay, I had them at the six and a half, so I benefited there. But on a straight bet that I made on game day, specifically because I knew the public was heavy on Seattle, and so I decided to test out this fade the public thing, uh, instead of paying minus 125 for Eagles plus six and a half, another book had them plus six at even money. So I thought there was better value there, and I gave up the half point, and I ended up with a push. Oh, well. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it, it's an interesting question about this public thing. You know, when the public is piling, like, 90% onto one side of a spread, is that going to be the losing side most of the time because the public is wrong most of the time? Uh, or, or you hear people who won't bet a line that looks too easy because they say it looks too easy for a reason. To me, it all kind of reeks of superstition. Um, yeah. And if it does seem like you hear all the time about the public being wrong and the sharps being right, I think that's partially because you only hear about it when it yeah. plays out that way. Uh, when all is said and done, you look at the book's winning percentages on NFL bets they're more or less winning the VIG. That's their edge. They just want even action. They don't have a crystal ball that tells them the Eagles are going to hit a meaningless Hail Mary followed by an even more meaningless two-point conversion. Sometimes the books get lucky. Sometimes the betters get lucky. But if the books have balanced action, they don't even care which side wins. That's really what they're, what they're striving for. Um, the COVID thing is a, a really important topic, and the NFL is being pretty bullheaded about this. They've basically been betting all season on none of their players getting seriously sick, which isn't a terrible bet given the age and health of those players. But the same can't be said for coaches and other staff. But, you know, they have a business to run. There's a lot of money at stake. They're clearly going to plow through almost anything that comes their way and get their 16 games in. Uh, it's not terribly fair to the Ravens that they were missing half their starters for a key game against Pittsburgh. It's entirely unfair to the Broncos to play a game with no quarterback, not to mention it's unfair to the teams that are trying to catch the Saints in the standings. Uh, if the Broncos were a contender, as the Ravens are, I wonder if the NFL would be so quick to make them play rather than uh, at least bumping it back a few days. Uh I'll say this. Uh, the NFL is, as of now, rejecting the idea of a playoff bubble, and I think that would be a big mistake. I know it's tough to get buy-in from everybody, and, you know, these players, they're, they're going to want to have some home games, but what happens if Patrick Mahomes gets COVID during the playoffs or if the Steelers' whole offensive line has to go into quarantine? If the NFL is lucky enough to get through 17 weeks of the regular season, they shouldn't press their luck in the playoffs. Either they bubble up or there's a very high chance something happens that chips away at the credibility of the Super Bowl. I don't think that asking seven NFC teams to go into a bubble for three weeks and asking seven AFC teams to go into another bubble for three weeks is too big of an ask in order to ensure that nobody is exposed during the playoffs. Well, I think what's going to happen is that the bubbles will be uh, team-wide in their city. 
Um, so instead of being in and out of their homes and, and visiting, you know, any public places or whatever, during the week, they're all going to be in, say, the same hotel right. and um, and distance and what have you. And of course, you know, this is a little different from the NBA and other bubbles. Uh, there's 14 teams, you know, starting the uh, first week and six of them get knocked out mm-hmm. right away. So there's only eight after one week. So right. uh, those six teams, they were, you know, five days or whatever away from their families. And then there's four and two. So I, I think that could work. I mean, obviously, it's safer to bring them all to the same place and then have them exit quickly that way. But I think they will bubble up in their city and I think, and then just, you know, fly in for the game and, and in and out. Uh, I think that might work. I, I, I guess they're going to get away with this, but like I said, they are gambling. Yeah. I mean, right. If they go that route, it's better than nothing. Um, but precisely for the reason that you said that six of the teams are, are, are gone after one week and then half of the remaining teams are gone the next week. I don't think it's that, big of an ask to put uh, these teams into a three week or less for some teams. It'll be one week or two weeks, whatever, three week bubble just to really ensure the integrity of it and then take your two Super Bowl teams and and move them into a super, super tight uh, bubble for for that Super Bowl week. yeah, uh, it's it's definitely there. There are different levels of gambles that they seem to be willing to take here, and uh, I would I would have been playing a lot safer than the NFL, but uh, they're multi gazillionaires and I'm not. So what do I know? Well, the last thing is, you know, four quarterbacks in the same room. I mean, we we don't let our president and vice president play <laughs> right. in the same plane for a reason. <laughs> right. and, uh, this is not so different. I mean, you definitely have your top two quarterbacks not even see each other except maybe on game day and barely even then. And, and, and the same with linebackers and defensive. I mean, it's just all over the place. That's so obvious. That's why I'm not that uh, sorry for the Broncos. I mean, give me a break. Right. And the Ravens had such an extensive uh, in, infection that somebody really screwed up. Somebody within the organization, I have to believe. And so I'm not as sympathetic to those teams as you are. Okay. Uh, For our second story, we go to the state that will undoubtedly be next to launch online sports betting and online casino gaming, Michigan. And this week, we got encouraging news about just how soon those launches will be happening. The Joint Committee on Administrative Rules waved through the rules and regulations for online wagering during a scheduled meeting Tuesday, speeding things along. And now the question is, will online gaming go live before the end of 2020? State Representative Brent Iden, the key legislator behind Michigan's gaming bills, said, quote, as a betting man, I'd put my money on it. Uh, And that's not the only positive news out of Michigan this week, as on Tuesday, a bill allowing online poker to be played against players in other legal online poker states quickly passed out of committee. I'm happy for Michigan poker players, if a bit jealous for the moment as a Pennsylvania poker player. Uh, John, are you impressed with how quickly and easily things are moving along in Michigan? Uh, Are are they shaping up to be a New Jersey-like state that does almost everything right in terms of giving online gaming the best possible chance to succeed? Uh, Well, New Jersey, with no leader to follow, went from passing an online casino gaming bill in 2013 to launching live six months later. Um, There's not going to be any state that's Jersey-like on that topic. Um, But I give Michigan credit if it does get into a compact with the three unicorns for online poker, Nevada, New Jersey, and little old Delaware. Um, And it will shame Pennsylvania into it, uh, I must say. And a number of Midwestern states allow online sports betting. And I I can't imagine how a legislator voted for that is going to say, sure, I see online casino gaming is where the real money is. And there's no special interest group opposing multi-state online poker compacts, for instance. But, gee, I don't know where to go with that. 
Yeah, um, the the online casino thing is sort of is interesting because obviously that is the big money maker, but maybe there's a little bit less public demand to have online casino in in your state. Whereas you know online poker players and and sports betters, I think there's a little more of of that sort of sentiment of, of really wanting it. Um, but yeah, I mean this is certainly good news coming out of Michigan. Uh, not that launching on say. December 30th is all that different than launching on, say, January 15th. But it's good to see the system working and and to give other states another positive example, like New Jersey has served as for the past couple of years, uh, really the past seven years, as you say. Uh, but nobody seems to have paid much attention to their online casino and online poker pioneering. Uh, people are paying attention since they became one of the pioneers in, in online sports betting. Um, on the interstate poker front, uh, I do think that Pennsylvania will join in. It's just a matter of when. So my jealousy there is limited. At least I have a site to play on, which is a lot more than poker players in most states can say. My suspicion is that while interstate play is not explicitly not allowed in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Gaming Control Board has been reluctant to open those floodgates as long as this DOJ Wire Act interpretation is still floating out there. And the general consensus is that when the new presidential administration takes over, this DOJ hindrance disappears. Uh, but anyway, Michigan lawmakers clearly get it. Uh, State Senator Curtis Hertel has been vocal all along that if you don't have interstate liquidity, there's not much point to having online poker. So, yeah, good times ahead and very soon for online gamblers in Michigan, which will uh, quickly enter the conversation for number one online gaming state in the country once things get really up and rolling. Yeah, I was giving Pennsylvania in some articles a couple of years ago a lot of credit because I, I've mentioned that um, Nevada, New Jersey, and Delaware are in many ways outliers uh, in terms of gambling. They're much more aggressive gambling states than any other. And so the point that I was making was that Pennsylvania is kind of a traditional state. Mm -hmm. So when they even went for online poker, that that opened the door for other states to say, okay, we don't trust Nevada, New Jersey, and Delaware. They're kind of weird, but right. Pennsylvania is a regular state like us. And instead, I think Michigan is going to be that state that, you know, 10 years from now, we look back and say, how did we get this to 20, 25 states? I think Michigan now is going to be the trailblazer that Pennsylvania should have been. Yep. Good call. All right. For our final news item, uh, we've done a lot of negative news about the Las Vegas casino industry during the pandemic because the news has mostly been negative. But here's some optimism. Wynn Resort CEO Matt Maddox said during a virtual meeting with the Las Vegas Latin Chamber of Commerce this week that once a COVID-19 vaccine is available, quote, I think it will be similar to the Roaring Twenties, end quote. He expressed a belief that the economic recovery will be swift and substantial, that people will be extremely eager to go to Vegas and let loose. Uh, so brief news item that I've introduced here, John, and, and a brief question for you. Do you agree with Matt Maddox? Well, you know, the Roaring Twenties came in the aftermath of the unfortunately titled War to End All Wars, which a generation later became known as World War One. Uh, and the post-World War Two era was a celebration as well. And I'm going to count my dad's return from 35 B-17 bombardier flights over Germany and then marriage to his patient sweetheart in 1946 as a part of that. Um, hardly anybody in recent times likely thought the Vegas experience would be out of reach, even if you had any money left. You still can't do it. So uh, getting back something treasured like that, that seemingly might be lost, but enough about my parents again, right. uh, seems to be bound to be rife for raucous celebration. I mean, it's particularly true given strong stock market showings that will only grow if the vaccines do turn the tide. 
My one caveat is this, when do people think this is going to happen? My mindset now is that for those struggling to cancel Thanksgiving and end the year celebration with family and friends, I think those all come back with gusto in 2021. Uh, but I'm not ready to promise anybody Halloween or Labor Day, much less July 4th next year. Um, once again, patience will have to be a virtue. Absolutely. People still need to be patient. It's not like the second the vaccine gets out there, everyone's going straight to Vegas and burning their masks and partying 24-7. It will take time for the vaccine to become widely distributed enough to create a, a sort of herd immunity. Um, based on listening to Andy Slavitt's podcast interview this week with Ashish Jha, who is the dean of Brown University School of Public Health, and we trust anyone coming from Brown University, of course, <laughs> uh, they said he said we're, we're going to get back to quote unquote normal in stages and a feeling that it's okay to sit across a table from a non-family member at an indoor restaurant without a mask on to the, the feeling that it's okay to do that safely. That probably won't really come until the fall of 2021. Uh, so yeah, basically the time frame you're talking about, we might still be a year or so away from that. Um, but all that said, I do agree with Matt Maddox, whenever people decide they're comfortable going to Vegas, uh, for some people, that's right now, and keep those people way the hell away from me. Uh, but, but for some, it'll be next summer. For some, it'll be 2022. Whenever someone is comfortable, they're going to be ready to let loose and have fun and spend money and put the COVID-19 age behind them. I don't think the notion that the 2020s will be another roaring 20s is crazy at all. I do think people will have a lot of pent-up Vegas-style partying to get out of their system as this subsides. Yeah, and, and it's that it's that same appreciation after the the World Wars. Obviously, that was a different kind of tragedy in, mm -hmm. in very profound ways, but it for the average person, it's uh, being deprived of what they thought was uh, a given, and then then they get it back. And that's, you know, it's the old, you know, you lose your wallet and you're stressed for a half hour. And then when you find it, you, you don't feel like you're even. You feel like you're ahead. Like, this right. is awesome. I have my wallet. When <laughs> an hour ago, an hour earlier, you were like, of course I have my wallet. I always have my wallet. And I think we're going to get that vibe. And so I'm, I'm not sure how much more people can party in Vegas. We've both been there several times. And uh you know, we we're not out as late as uh, most, but we've seen you know what can happen. I don't know how much crazier they can get, but uh, they'll try, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. It's been almost two years since Jamie Salzberg was on our podcast, and a lot has changed in the world and in our industry since then. But one thing that hasn't changed is that Jamie still isn't gambling. He's a former problem gambler who hasn't gambled since July 2010, and he speaks about his experiences and his perspectives on responsible gambling on the After Gambling podcast and in his blog at aftergambling.com. And this year, he launched Dive, a consulting company to help those in the gaming industry responsibly address problem gambling. Jamie, welcome back to Gamble On. Thanks for having me on. So with Dive, you're talking to gaming operators, sports leagues, media outlets, etc., how do you feel about the progress being made with responsible gambling in the U.S. over the last year or two as sports betting has really gone mainstream? Like, are, are the people you're talking to now considerably more conscious of problem gambling and more eager to address it than they were a couple of years ago when sports betting was mostly still just a, a Vegas thing? 
No, absolutely. I mean, you said in the intro, this is my second time on this podcast and others, and there is definitely a conversation that is going on within the industry that just wasn't there a few years ago. I mean, just today I was on Betting on Sports America and they have a whole track on responsible gambling. And so there's a lot of advancements. And yeah, talking to a lot of operators, a lot of operators are definitely moving forward and very, they know they have to do something at this point. I mean, you look around the world and I think a lot of people have really good ideas and intents to get it right. Um, it just so happens right now, I think there's so many moving parts. I mean, between all the states and all uh, the different aspects that are going on here in the U.S. market that RG is always going to be one of the last things. So I, I see a lot of those conversations. They're really positive. Um, they're not at the speed, obviously, I would like to see them, but we're, we're starting to get there. There's an awareness and a discussion going on that wasn't there before. Okay. And, and it's not just coincidence. It, it, the, the spread of sports betting, you think, uh, has played a significant role in the increase in talk about problem gambling. Absolutely. I mean, that's, uh, I'm, it's part of why I am a a proponent for legalizing sports betting. Um, It's one of the things that it's going to bring more awareness to problem gambling should bring more funding to problem gambling to hopefully bring it out and and have us talk about what problem gambling is as a society, because it's one of those things that we've kind of hidden in the closet for a long time. Now with a legal regulated market, it's something that we have to address. And, and so I think that's why some of those conversations are starting to be had. And I'm excited to see where they continue to go. Yeah, I want to talk specifically about state houses, meaning legislators. Uh, you know, a lot of states in, in the time since we've uh, talked in this podcast have legalized sports betting. And, uh, you know, I see you as kind of a positive person. So I'm trying to lean in on whether you see any state uh, states that have really, uh, while legalizing sports betting, have really had a good focus on uh, on responsible gambling in a way that other states, and many of them are still finalizing details or starting to talk about it, you know, are there states that they, they can really look to and say, wow, that state they really got it together. Let's, let's look further at that. Or, you know, if there are any that are doing nothing at all and you feel like mentioning them, uh, we're in the cringe month after all, you can do that too. <laughs> no, I do try to be a glass half full type of guy. And so it's one of those things when I look at the States and I'll be honest, I kind of just punted on them doing much of anything a few years back. And so I haven't followed it uh, that much, but with this podcast, I knew we were going to talk about it. So I did my due diligence and it was like going back to school in a lot of ways. And I looked and unfortunately I didn't really find too much that really gets me that excited. Um, you look at like a state like Tennessee, there's some good stuff there relative. Um, they have a 5%, I believe on gross gaming revenue that is going to go to problem gambling, but that 5% is out of the 20% that the state gets. So when you really start boiling those numbers down, I mean, you take, take the numbers from the first week, if you take those out 52 weeks, it's going to be something like, uh, 130 million, right? In gross gaming revenue. Well, now you got 20% of that. Now you have 26 million. Now RG, you're down to 1.3 million, which on the surface sounds great. So that 5% number is, and that 5% is two or three times what a lot of other states have. But then you look at somebody like Pennsylvania and they're spending like 5 million and they had like 800,000 just in administrative costs last year. So a state like Tennessee, 1.2 million on the surface sounds like this huge number. But when you really boil it down and start figuring out what that number equates to and what you can actually do with it, it's just not that significant. And then you kind of compare it. I'm an advertising guy. So you start stepping back and looking at, you're going up and it's an awareness campaign against the likes of a DraftKings or a FanDuel who might spend 25 million. I mean, look at 2016, they spent 200 million between the two of them. 
and they're spending 25 million in a month or in a week. So now you have 400,000 or a million, 2 million to do a problem gambling awareness. It just, you're not going to win that battle. I mean, you guys are boxing guys. It's Mike Tyson versus one of us. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me because in this conversation, we're talking about operators are doing a fairly good job, it seems, or at least certainly they're saying the right things. And sometimes they're backing it up with money already. And legislatures, yeah, I got the sense, too, that they're not doing very much. I mean, I've been assuming that government has to be involved with this to to uh, help the industry get it right. Is it possible just that the operators themselves are going to do it so well that uh, they're not going to need state intervention as much? I mean, I, I never had thought of it that way before, but I guess as long as there's funding for responsible gambling programs to help people who are in trouble, I don't know, maybe it doesn't matter where the money comes from. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, like I said, I kind of punted on the state legislative uh, process doing us much good. And I think the operators, they do have the ability. You see the, the checks that they're signing to do endorsement deals. The money's there. And they also, there's a business case that can be made easily. You look at the UK, you don't want that regulation to come down the line. And so there is a case where they can kind of do things on their own. And I, I do see, I've talked to several operators, there is a desire to get this right. Um, within companies. Now, sometimes that doesn't go high enough, in my opinion, in, in the architecture of the company to that board level position. And that I think is the one thing you have a lot of people that are in compliance or responsible gambling, and they get it. They see these problems that come back to them. We just need to continue to have this discussion. So it goes further up into companies. Yeah, so I guess the gambling media can help in this way, too. I mean, you know, if, if we collectively are interested in, in seeing this problem addressed uh, sufficiently and we uh, spotlight the companies that are doing things well, that can be an incentive for them, too. Like you talk about marketing. It doesn't matter why they put the money in, whether it's out of the noble intentions or just to get good publicity and headlines. If you're a responsible gambler getting help, you don't care where the money came from. You're getting help. Absolutely. And that's, I've long said, I'd want to see who's going to be the Volvo of gaming. Like, because I want somebody, I, I don't, my friends, they'll be like, Hey, I heard your story. I don't gamble anymore. I'm like, no, that's not the takeaway. The takeaway is how do you do this in a safe way? And so if there's an operator that is killing it with RG and I can say, look, go work with them. I know they're going to look after you. They're going to take care of you. That, that's something that I can use and other advocates can use to push people in and build the business case for why RG is a good thing to lead with. And I mean, like you said, with media, we have so many big media, I mean, personalities. I mean, you look at the Portnoy's, you look at the Ravels, they use their platform to do some kind of initiative to focus on RG. They can do a lot of good that, I mean, we talk about 800,000. I think those guys could raise a ton of money with just kind of getting some of their followers to say, hey, take one bet out of 100 and then put it towards RG. I mean, support the national council, support your state council. Um, there's some, some good opportunities that we can use these other things outside of legislation that I'm optimistic that we'll get there eventually. All right. Well, we, uh, we primarily focus on the, the, the mobile and, and online side of gaming, but we do touch on the brick and mortar stuff as well. And I'm curious for your thoughts on, on a brick and mortar topic here, uh, Jamie, I, I've gone to casinos during the pandemic a couple of times as a reporter and there's a part of me that sees people there with the social element of gambling all but gone. They're risking their health to at least some small degree in order to play casino games. And it crosses my mind that maybe just by going to a casino during a, a pandemic, every one of these people has a gambling problem. Or then again, maybe they're just bored as hell. I don't know. But 
am I being too judgmental by even having that thought? Uh, or is there reason to be concerned that a high percentage of the people who are gambling in person right now are indeed problem gamblers? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an easy conclusion to come to, right? I mean, there's something to Occam's razor that those two things probably could go together. I would say the same for somebody that, I mean, just has to go to the bar after work every day in the same environment. But I do think we are in such an unprecedented time that we do. I mean, people, we've taken away all their forms of escapism. So people are going to go out and maybe it is just a night out. Um, and, And problem gambling is so complex that we really can't boil it down to, to that simple of a metric. I wish we could, because it would be so much easier to, to address and help. Um, but yeah, I, I think we have to kind of understand that there's so many different factors at play right now. I mean, people are on edge for financial reasons and emotional reasons and health reasons that maybe they just want to go gamble for a little bit and uh, without being in their shoes and really understanding everything that's going on, I, I can't, it would strictly be guessing. Yeah, I mean, I, I see some of the people there that, you know, they're with their spouse or with with a friend or something like that. And it that I don't know if that's um, if I shouldn't be making uh, I probably shouldn't be making assumptions, period, as you as you basically said. But whether the, the assumption that if you're there and there's clearly some social element or you're doing it with a friend or somebody, that that is somehow less likely that you're a, a problem gambler than if you're the sort of person who needs to go alone. Again, I d- shouldn't make assumptions, but I assume that there is some level of correlation there. Yeah, well, and I think you do bring up a good point. When you gamble alone, that's one of those big markers of harm or potential harm that I see. And I always tell people, keep it enjoyable. I mean, be transparent about it. Go with friends or at least, I mean, even gambling online, share what your bets are with friends. So maybe that's somebody that's listening to this and they're a gambler. Like that's my little advice to them is always keep it social. Um, Don't make bets that you wouldn't want to come on. I love at the end of this where you guys share your bets, right? Like that level of transparency that protects people. Like that's a great uh, thing to incorporate into their gambling to help protect them from being that person that is gambling alone and for escapism, because that is where things get really messy really quick. Yeah. And at times we uh, demonstrate how hard gambling really is because we get on tough streaks, but I notice you're losing streak. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, We're playing with a mythical bankroll and and we are transparent about it. And so when we do well, we feel a little better, but you know, neither one of us is going to go broke on it, but you mentioned Portnoy. And of course that's Dave Portnoy, uh, founder of Barstool Sports. And uh, you know, he could be helpful in highlighting responsible gambling week, but he's more likely to be setting up irresponsible gambling week as a form of snark. And, you know, recently they had an Instagram post about, uh, like a, a little boy in the stands is uh, looks like he's holding a sign that says uh, I need three and a half as if this child has, has a wager on a game three and a half points and of course it's all just in good fun and and it's all being sarcastic and don't be so uptight you know my whole life I've pretty much ignored people who I feel like are trying to get my goat I just feel like I don't want to give them any oxygen. So they're jumping around, you know, waving their arms and everything excitedly. And I'll just walk right past because I'm not going to take the bait. Um, So I'm a little torn here because on the one hand, I don't want to take the bait. But on the other hand, the the topic is so serious, as as you know better than anybody. So I, I'm a little torn. I mean, do you think that regulators, of course, Penn National, which is the parent of, uh, in more ways than one, of Barstool, right away said, oh, we didn't realize what it was, and we took it down, and we didn't mean it. But, you know, guess what? Barstool's going to not mean it again and again, unless regulators really go after them with some serious penalties. Uh, is that what's needed, or is it better to just ignore them? 
Yeah. And I think it highlights one of the complications and one of the things that we're going to struggle with here in the U.S. is that we don't have like they do in the UK, which is the Advertising Standards Authority, which rules on things like that. And they have case studies and and there are penalties and fines for doing that type of thing. I I do think, I mean, given the exposure, I mean, the number of times I alone have been asked about this question, like, I don't think they're going to make that mistake again. And I mean, that was a mistake on so many levels. Just, I mean, the fact that never use kids in advertising is pretty much one of my safe uh, advertising rules. And so that one crossed the line on so many different levels. Um, But we are, we're going to have these mistakes that are made. Um, Barstool, they are going to push the the limits. I mean, Bleacher Report pushes the limits. I think Ravel pushes the limits. There's a lot of people that are just trying to feel their way through this. Um, And it is, it's just a new market and it's a new topic. And now it does, I guess, highlight that RG is becoming more of a discussion point because I don't know that a few years ago, this would have gotten the attention that it's gotten today. So maybe that's a, a positive sign. Um, but also, I mean, it's go back to the business case. The business case for not making the, these mistakes is every time somebody talks about bad advertising here in the US and sports betting, it's that exact example. And you repeat that over and over. That does damage to a brand. That's not what, what these brands want long-term. That is, I mean the whole any exposure is good exposure. I would argue this is a case where that wouldn't be true. Right. Uh, you really are a glass half full guy. If you were able to take that, take that and say, uh, make something positive out of it. They, they have a unique opportunity. I mean, that's all sports betting brands. I think one of the things where, where the RG campaigns really go wrong is that they, they all of a sudden have this completely different voice and, and vision and graphics and everything like that. And then all of a sudden you're the better that likes them for all the things that they like them for the RG message doesn't come, doesn't connect because it's just different. It's like, what is this thing? Get this off my screen. And so that's where, I mean, all of the different players, I mean, you have so many different media types. I think if they're able to use their voice and figure out and really understand RG and hopefully they'll get into some of these discussions to really truly understand it at a deeper level to understand what they should or shouldn't do, then I think they can do some, some better things in, in talking in an authentic voice to their customers or their, their followers to help them understand why RG matters, why using the tools matter. And so I think that's that's the opportunity for everybody in this space. It's not just Barstool, it's everybody to connect with your customers in the same way that you do, which connects them and draws them to your brand when you talk about your RG tools. Excellent. Really enlightening stuff, uh, as always, uh, when we talk to you, Jamie. Uh, I'll note that our listeners can go to aftergambling.com to learn more about uh, about you and your various projects. Uh, Jamie, thanks uh, so much for coming on the podcast again. I always appreciate you guys. Thank you. All right, thanks, Jamie. Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. We'll get to the Fast Five shortly, but first, let's update our shared bankroll, and I'm pleased to report that the losing streak is over. No thanks to me. Uh, John carried us with two winning college football bets last weekend, Clemson minus 24.5 and LSU plus 14.5. He was on the right side of both of those, so that won us $200. My only bet graded this week was a boxing bet. I took Daniel Dubois by knockout at minus 180 for $90, but Joe Joyce's jab broke his orbital bone and Dubois surrendered in round 10, so we lost $90 on that. But I'll again go with the silver lining that 
if I had bet Dubois to win straight up at minus 400, the seemingly safer bet, I probably would have risked more money to do so. In any case, we profited $110 on the week. We're now in the red by $552. We also have $936 on holding futures bets. So that leaves us with $8,512 available. And you're up first, John. Uh, well, I'll mention that Clemson led 31 nothing after one quarter. So that was a great pick. Uh, <laughs> LSU, look, they scored a touchdown with 38 seconds left while down 20 to nothing. That, my friend, is a backdoor cover. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I'm getting 14 and a half points, and the favorite's quarterback only tosses for about 130 yards, and his team punts 11 times. So my analysis of Texas A&M not being able to handle the, the big stage was right, I think. But with a minute left, <laughs> we were in trouble. Uh, anyway, first play here. Uh, even though my personal year-long golf pool is long done until Fe Pebble Beach in February, uh, I'll dive in when there's a good tweener event like this one in Mexico. Really good field. Uh, it's a good course for Tony Finau, but he can't be trusted to win anywhere, even at plus 1,800. Uh, wait, 20, for, 20 to win 360 on that. Uh, and 50 at plus 200 for top 10, and 50 at minus 110 for top 20. Uh, now, this happens to be the worst stellar player on the tour for Sunday scoring. So if you're sitting pretty through 54 holes, at least uh, check the cash out figure. All right. So we've got him for top 20, top 10, and and a little bit on the uh, on the win at all. The unlikely one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. I'm going back to boxing, uh, despite last week's misread. Uh, big pay-per-view fight on Saturday. Two of the top welterweights in the world, undefeated U.S. Olympian Errol Spence versus veteran Danny Garcia from Philly. And if you followed these fighters' careers closely, as I know all of our listeners have, uh, you know that in their big fights against opponents on this elite level, they've typically gone the distance and it's been close. Errol Spence won a split decision over Sean Porter last time out, whereas Danny Garcia lost razor-thin decisions to both Porter and Keith Thurman and has close decision wins on his record over Lucas Matisse and Lamont Peterson. So I'm making two bets here. Spence is between a 3-1 to one and 4-1 to one favorite, depending on the book. I do lean toward him being the likely winner, so I think the right bet is Spence by decision at minus 125, so we'll bet $125 to win 100, but here's the bet I really love, $10 on the draw at 23 to 1. This fight could absolutely be a draw. It's likely to go the distance. It's minus 225 that the fight goes the distance, so if indeed it lasts 12 rounds, then we're rooting for either a Spence win or a draw. We'll have two of the three bases covered. All right, give me Florida minus 17 and a half points at Tennessee at a mere 107 to win 100. Uh, one of my recent beats was from the Gators sleepwalking through the first half against winless, hapless, and male kickerless Vanderbilt. Um, so I get my money back here with a chase in Florida team that's not going to sleepwalk again. Okay. Uh, and for uh, my second bet, uh, fun fact here, John, the Buffalo Bills have not won on Monday Night Football since 1999. Uh, and they're, uh, they're playing the 49ers this week, not in San Francisco, but on the West Coast, more or less. Uh, and this is a total trap game. Bills are eight and three, feeling good about themselves, coming off a comfortable win over the Chargers, looking ahead to a home game against the Steelers next week. And here are the 49ers, five and six and one game out of a playoff spot, a prideful team, a well-coached team, a pissed-off team that got kicked out of their home stadium. They have their best running back, Raheem Mostert, back. All things considered, uh, even though the Bills are the more talented all-around team, this feels like a 50-50 game in terms of who will win, and the Niners are as high as plus 130 on the money line. I like that number. But 
my confidence is not exactly at an all-time high, so let's keep the bet modest, risking $50 to win 65 In the spirit of responsible gambling, as preached by Jamie Salzberg, nothing wrong with pulling back a bit rather than going on tilt. That sounds good. All right, we wrap things up with the Fast Five, where I said last episode that any week where I don't gain a game on John is a bad week for me. So last week was a bad week for me. I went 2-2-1, and and John also went 2-2-1. and We both won with the Bills and pushed with the Chiefs and went 1-2 and otherwise. So John is still five and a half games up on me. He's 32-26-2, and I'm 27-32-1. And I'm up first this week. And I had a tough time with this week's games. The league is just getting so unpredictable due to COVID. You never know if you're going to pick a team that's going to lose a bunch of key players. There are games being played on neutral fields. Uh, these games are definitely easier to pick if you wait until Sunday morning. But we have to work with the the Wednesday night Superbook lines and make our picks on Thursday morning. So here goes. Uh, the Raiders have burned me a couple of times this season, but... After that absolute egg they laid last week, they just have to be motivated to come through and play well against the Jets, right? Uh, The Raiders are favored by eight and a half. I think anything in single digits is good value. I'll take Vegas here as a big road favorite against the horrendous Jets team that is three and eight against the spread this season. Uh, Next, if I know John Brennan, this could be a duplicate pick, but in in a battle of eight and three teams, I like the Titans favored by five and a half to cover at home against the Browns. Uh, Sorry, Jamie Salzberg, tortured Cleveland fan, Uh, or maybe not. Sorry. Maybe I'm putting the fade Raskin stink on Tennessee by picking them, (laughs) but it's Derrick Henry season. Uh, The Browns have been eking out close wins against bad teams. Their last four wins are by a combined 13 points against the Bengals, Jaguars, Texans, and Eagles. So anything under a touchdown is worth taking uh, with the Titans here. Uh, Now, I've done a horrible job picking Patriots games this season, but sometimes the answer is just staring you right in the face. Their game against the Chargers is a pick 'em, so it's just a question of which team will win, throw out the points. And while these two teams are comparable from a talent standpoint, one team is coached by Anthony Lynn, who just keeps finding ways to lose and to mismanage the clock. And the other team is coached by Bill Belichick and is clinging to playoff hopes and has to view this as a must win. If it was Patriots minus two or minus three, then you have a tough call here because the Chargers might find a way to lose by a point or two. But at Pick'em, I have to go with New England. Um, Next up is the obvious one based on my bankroll bet. 49ers getting two and a half in that Buffalo Bills trap game. No further explanation needed. And lastly, give me John Brennan's Washington football team, which he desperately wants to tank for a better draft pick uh, (laughs) to cover the seven and a half point spread at Pittsburgh. Uh, I doubt the football team will win outright and become the first team to beat the Steelers. But you have Pittsburgh on a short week. You have that excellent Washington defensive line. You have Alex Smith reminding us that he's a competent quarterback who won't just hand the other team free points too often. And the Steelers do tend to win close. Seven of their 11 wins are by single digits. So give me the football team plus seven and a half. All right, here we go. Yeah, you're going to like these. Uh, First, number one, I know the Titans are good because they waxed the Colts in last week's rematch. They crushed the Bills. They edged the Ravens. They lost a close one to the Steelers. Three and two versus teams with winning records. I know the Browns are good because they beat the Colts. Wait, they got crushed by the Ravens and Steelers by more than 30 <laughs> points. They lost to the Raiders, and they struggle against drags, as you noted, and they're one in three against good teams. Wait, I, so I don't know the Browns are good. So, yes, Titans minus five and a half, as you All noted. Right. Yep. Um, Seahawks minus 10 versus Giants. 
I'd have this as my best bet if I thought Daniel Jones would play. Colt McCoy is better, believe it or not, but he's old and rusty. Um, Seahawks score 31 points a game. The Giants score 19. I see this as more of like 35-10. Next up, yep, football team plus 7.5 versus Steelers. Uh, Another key linebacker lost for the season versus team, uh, which is Alex Alex Smith. He can't feast on a missing safety, but he can on another missing linebacker. Hmm. Uh, Steelers offense scored one touchdown against a decimated Baltimore defensive line. Uh, I would like to see odds on Big Ben being knocked out of this game early, like the Bengals quarterback. Uh, Wouldn't wouldn't shock me. Um, Yeah, I'm also going Patriots pick them versus Chargers. Hmm. I I feel like I'm pushing my luck here. I got to admit, Patriots had no business winning last week and the Chargers had no business not at least covering. But the coaching differential here, as you know, it, I, I, I'm making it trump the vast quarterback differential. But uh, like you, this has been my toughest week of picks. I'm not I'm not bragging about too many of these. And finally, Jaguars plus 10 versus Vikings. Mike Glennon gets a start. I expect Minshew on relief to cover a spread. The Vikings probably have no business giving. Uh, all right. Yep. Not not great for me that uh, the best I can possibly do is to make up two games on you. But uh, we'll see. Uh, maybe maybe this is a sign at least that uh, that three of our picks are really strong and I should go parlay them together somewhere or, or maybe not. Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe not. <laughs> that will do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks, everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Jamie Salzberg. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to USBets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And with that, John, please do your thing and take us out. Yeah, well, the the football phrase of the week is bad beat, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, I think for an off-season project, let's not only define what it is, but devise some kind of scale of 1 to 10. Um, All of my fast five picks last week were close. Rams minus 7 versus 49ers. Rams commit three turnovers in the first half, but they trail by only four points. They have a late rally to tie it and nearly get overtime, but that would have been too late for me anyway. So it's a weird game, but no bad beat points, even though it's close. Jaguars plus 5.5 I had versus the Browns. Jaguars led 19-17 in the second half. They go down 27-19. They did score a touchdown with under four minutes left and missed the tying two-point conversion, which I applauded. Uh, But it's a one-score game, so no reason for Cleveland to relax. So uh, no points on bad beat if you had Cleveland. Uh, Cardinals minus two and a half versus the Patriots. Cam Newton was nine for 18, passing for 88 yards in this game. But a bullshit – can we say bullshit? I think we can. Yeah, sure. Uh, all right. Personal foul call confirmed on the broadcast by the rules expert handed the Patriots a 51 yard field goal try at the buzzer. And it's good. So it's a 2017 final. Now, overtime would have been 50 50 for the Cardinals. But uh, it's, all, it's a low bad beat score here. It's a bad <laughs> beat, but it's not it's not up there with the the all time uh, Scott Van Pelt ones. Um, <laughs> Bills minus five and a half first Chargers that we both had. I didn't see the end, but apparently the lame duck idiot, the LA Chargers coach, he spit the bit in the last minute to allow yeah. us to escape with a 27-17 win. Uh, bad beat if you picked the Chargers. I mean, you bought that coach with your bet, so right. I don't know. That's 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 part of the baggage you accepted the the, the life you chose. <laughs> uh, Chiefs minus three versus Buccaneers that we both had. You know, Kansas City goes through Tampa Bay like Sherman through Georgia, and it's a 27-10 laugher until the Bucks get too late TDs for the push. Bad, but again, not near the top of the pile because it's only a three-point spread. And if you if you allow a team to get within three, I don't care if it's ten seconds left. I mean, that's that's not not quite a bad beat. It, it was weird and it was painful, but it's not not that high on the scale of one to ten. Then there's a Steelers game we mentioned that was pretty bad, but not ultimate either. Big points for the Eagles version, though. Yes. Now, Coach Doug Peterson has no idea why he's going for two there, <laughs> uh, because if he did, he wouldn't have bothered. 
if you're down 14 with say 12 minutes left, going for two there slightly, very slightly, improves your chances instead of kicking. That's true. But with 15 seconds left, it makes no sense. I have no doubt on Peterson's integrity. But tell that to the guy, and there was a real guy or gal who bet $500,000 on a Seahawks minus six and a half points. <laughs> that's that's brutal because you don't even you're not even worried. If they score a touchdown, who cares? They they only win by seven. No big deal. And then you see them line up for the two. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's brutal. And finally, my LSU backdoor covers way up there for making a 20 point lead over to, to 13 in the final minute. Maybe I knock one point off because the favorite couldn't move the ball. But that's a pretty good one. I got to admit, uh, another project worth doing for everybody in 2021. Personal notebooks laying out the bad beats and lucky covers. You know, we're primarily, I think, pre-wired to assume we get more unlucky than lucky. But an honest weekly review, I think likely will show us at the end of the year, it's not really true. So I've given myself and you some homework for uh, if and when this damn year ever ends. And with that, until next time, gamble on responsibly.